readings are from Joshua chapter 16, verse 1 to 4, verse 5, verse 10, and Joshua chapter 17, verse 1, and 12 to 17. The allotment for Joseph began at the Jordan, east of the springs of Jericho, and went up from there through the desert into the hill country of Bethel. It went on from Bethel, that is Luz, crossed over to the territory of the Archites in Atarath, descended westward to the territory of the Japhletites as far as the region of Lower Beth Horon and on to Geza, ending at the Mediterranean Sea. So Manasseh and Ephraim, the descendants of Joseph, received their inheritance. This was the territory of Ephraim, according to its clans. They did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Geza. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. This was the allotment for the tribe of Manasseh as Joseph's firstborn, that is, for Machir, Manasseh's firstborn. Machir was the ancestor of the Gileadites, who had received Gilead and Bashan because the Machirites were great soldiers. Yet the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. The people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for an inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. If you are so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves there in the land of the Perizzites and Raphaites. The people of Joseph replied, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have chariots fitted with iron, both those in Bethshan and its settlements, and those in the valley of Jezreel. But Joshua said to the tribes of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are numerous and very powerful. You will have not only one allotment. Would you want God to bless your life? We want God to bless our lives, don't we? Now God has already blessed us in many great ways but we are always hungry for more who would not want more of God's blessing we want an abundance of blessing but we want to have it now and we don't want to have to put ourselves out too much to get it lots of it quick and easy that's what we feel that's what we want But what about more obedience, more holiness, more prayer, more studying God's word, and more work for the Lord? What about building up the church? You say that sounds a bit like costly blessing, hard blessing, It doesn't sound as if we're going to get God's blessing anytime soon. If that is how God's blessing comes. In these two chapters of Joshua, we're going to see some different attitudes 
towards what God has given. Some people are just going to embrace the blessing, the inheritance that God has given them, and they're going to make the most of it, and they're going to possess the land. Others are going to say, we want more land, we want more inheritance, rather than making the most of what God has given. Some are not satisfied with their inheritance, and yet others take the lazy way out as they try to possess the land. Remember the section of Joshua that we are in. At the beginning we had all the battles, the victories, the celebrations, the mighty hand of God displayed, the excitement. But now we are in the all-important phase of possessing what God has given us. This is what their redemption was all about. God had brought them out of Egypt. They had spent 40 years in the wilderness. Then they crossed over the Jordan and they fought battles. But battles were not the end. That, they were not the goal. The goal was that they would take the land that God had given them and that they would possess that land and make the most of what God had given them. We've been trying each Sunday morning to, as we've looked at Joshua, to try and draw a parallel between ourselves as New Testament Christians and these Old Testament people of God. We are in the stage, as Christians today, of possessing the salvation that God has given us. The fact that you've been saved, that you've been baptized, that you're in church membership... That's not the end. It's merely the beginning. We need to take possession of the salvation that God has given us. And that is the pattern for life within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we are so focused upon individualism that if we seek to make progress at all, we will do it through a diet of attending this church and that church, picking up spiritual scraps from here and there as if we ourselves are the main event. And we pay less attention to the building up of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, let's face it, that's hard work. To dig in and help lay the foundations to set a solid foundation in place and then to build upon that foundation, that's hard and steady work. Because what we find as we focus upon building a community, if that's what our focus becomes, as we build a community of God's people, we find that God will have blessed us and we have built up ourselves. Where our personal well-being is not the main thing, but the main thing is that God's people be built up, then we will find that indirectly that God has blessed us. We've spoken over this last few weeks about the example of Caleb in the book of Joshua. 
these Old Testament people of God. They have a role model for what they should do. They had Caleb. Now, Caleb is hardly mentioned. But yet we are told that he served the Lord wholeheartedly. Maybe you don't get a mention. Your name doesn't appear on the bulletin. That doesn't matter. As long as you serve the Lord wholeheartedly. Caleb had a vision to go on and serve the Lord and take possession of the land that the Lord his God had given him. For himself? No. For his tribe, for his clan. He was working for the community, for his people, and through his self-sacrificial work, he himself spiritually prospered. He was always a man hidden in the shadow of Joshua. He wasn't the main man. But that didn't make any difference. Maybe you find that you're playing second fiddle, that you're the, the, the number two, or maybe even further down the feeding order, maybe number 10, maybe number 20, and you don't rate or rank the important thing is that you serve the Lord wholeheartedly. Over these years, where it didn't serve God's purposes to give a running commentary on the life of Caleb, Caleb remained faithful to the Lord. And you and I may never have a running commentary on what it is that we're doing but yet quietly getting on and serving the Lord wholeheartedly, being faithful to him. When we were looking in chapter 15 and considering the, the inheritance of the tribe of Judah, we learned that Caleb was one of those original spies who, who believed in God. He's from the tribe of Judah, and he was named as an example for the tribe of Judah to follow. We saw that the rest of the tribe that they did not have a heart for the job that God had given them. There still remained much enemy in their territory, still remained much land to be possessed. But they didn't deal with it. Caleb had paid a high price, but in his wholehearted devotion to the Lord, that cost Caleb personally... But God blessed him. He was prepared to risk obedience to the Lord because he himself had faith in God. Then we come to the tribe of Joseph in chapter 16 and 17. We've now moved on to the second tribe, the tribe of Joseph. Now, Joseph is not mentioned. You know what's funny as life moves on? People, if you're being introduced, they'll say, this is John. And then all of a sudden you find yourself being introduced as, this is Kyle's father. And as time moves on, this is Samuel's grandfather. 
you see Joseph here, look at what he did in the book of Genesis. But here he's hardly mentioned. His two sons are mentioned. Manasseh and Ephraim, because the tribe of Joseph is considered now as two tribes. Isn't it a blessing to see the next generation make progress and develop? Where where perhaps you fade into the background and the younger generation are taking over and we pray that God will bless them and enable them, that they will bring their youthful energy and serve the Lord wholeheartedly. We see in the in God's dealings with Manasseh and Ephraim, we see the divine way. The first thing to note in these chapters is a reminder that we have here of the ways of God. Manasseh was the oldest son. But Ephraim comes first. That takes us back to Genesis chapter 48, where Joseph brought his two sons to his elderly father Jacob so that Jacob might bless them. And Jacob says, Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph is there thinking, no, it's Manasseh and Ephraim. The one to get the blessing is Manasseh. He's the oldest one. But Jacob switched the order of the names. And when Joseph presents the boys to Jacob, he placed the son, the boy Manasseh, so that Jacob could put his right hand on him and the younger boy Ephraim so that he could place his left hand on him. But blind old Jacob, he crossed his hands. And he blessed Ephraim, giving Ephraim priority. And this is what Joshua 16 and 17 does. There's no great fuss about the order, but it is a reminder of the ways of the Lord. How often the divine way reverses the conventions of men, overthrows the human idea of what ought to be, Because God is not the prisoner of what fallen people regard as normal. We see God's choice. Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. We're Christians, but we've no right to boast. We are the Lord's people chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world began. Chosen for what? Chosen for why? For the good that God saw in us? Not so. 
God chose us because he chose us. In his sovereign will, God has chosen to bless us. And the only thing that we can respond with is this, Lord, why me? Why would you bless me in this way? In James chapter 2, James says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? That's our inheritance, the kingdom of God. It's a great cause for humility on our part that God has blessed us the way he has blessed us. In chapter 15, we see that Judah came first. He wasn't the oldest. He wasn't the most noble. Remember how he was quite happy to bed down with what he thought was a Canaanite prostitute. Jacob's prophecy predicted that the scepter would not depart from Judah. Why is Judah so deserving of this? He's not. Judah was so evil and sinful in the way that he behaved. Yet God in mercy and in grace has blessed him. Judah will have royal primacy. Not because of birth, not because of favoritism or virtue, but because a sovereign God has chosen it this way. That ought to keep the tribes humble and grateful. In the Minor Prophets, you actually see the tribe of Judah presenting themselves as the untouchables. God is not going to punish us. We have the temple. We have God's law. God's not going to come in and do anything to us. We are the royal tribe. We all know that Messiah is going to come from our tribe. God wouldn't dare touch us. But God does touch them and punishes them. But he restored a remnant, a small group, that through that group from the tribe of Judah would come the Lord Jesus Christ. We have every reason to be humble. We have every reason to realize that the blessings that God has given us, that we do not deserve them. There was great cause for humility. But what the people did here was a great compromise. Chapter 16 outlines the territory for Ephraim. How did they get on with what God had given them? Were they, were they like Caleb? Did they follow that godly example? No, we see at the end of chapter 16 that the job was left unfinished. They did not dislodge the Canaanites. And to this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. You see, they didn't ignore the command of God entirely. 
They did make the Canaanites do forced labor, but they only went halfway. A deal, a scheme, a compromise was worked out. And as we move into the book of Judges and later into the time of the kings, we see that this unfinished business begins to play havoc with the people of God. You see, we cannot afford to play with God's word and be half obedient to decide we don't want to do this because it would upset too many people. We don't want to do this because we want peace. We don't want to have to go and do this dirty work. When God confronts us with wrong in our lives through the ministry of God's word, we need to go all the way with obedience. However disruptive to life and relationships that might be, we need to obey what God has said. Perhaps we feel that we'll get away with token gestures of obedience. That's what this tribe thought. A token gesture of keeping control over the things that God said should have been destroyed. It would weaken them in days to come. And the thing that they thought they had control over, it would pollute them and spoil their service for the Lord. The things that God had forbidden. We are likely to see some benefit of having those things. And maybe even using them in the church. What a waste, says someone, to destroy these Canaanites. Would it not be better to employ them? No, because God said destroy them. After all, I think we could actually see that, that the meaning in what God had said, where he said destroy, well, we really could interpret employing them or forcing them to be our slaves, that that in, is, a, is a kind of destroying. And you can see the negotiating there, the compromise, the deal. Do we do that in our lives? Seeking to employ sinful ways or attitudes? To manipulate within the church? Do we employ what God has said destroy? Do we seek to bring into our worship services and employ that which God had said destroy? Do we compromise with the word of God? God speaks to us and we rationalize with the word. We hash out some halfway obedience that eases our conscience. But it's not obedience. Destroy, God says, not employ. Then coming into chapter 17, we see people coming and saying, give us what God has promised. We consider the inheritance of the firstborn son, the son of, of Joseph, Manasseh. There is the mention of one family in particular. This man died without leaving any sons behind him. 
but he had five daughters. And back in the book of Numbers, we read how these five daughters went to Moses to secure their inheritance when they would come into the land. And now they make approaches to Joshua to make sure that they claim the inheritance that God promised. They want no more, no less than all that God had promised. They came pleading the word of God. The word that the Lord had spoken through Moses. And here is another good example for people to follow. We come and we claim the promise that God has given us. Now we don't always do that. If I'm in a particular miserable mood, I maybe just don't want to be encouraged because I, I want to enjoy my misery a little bit longer. I want to gripe and groan about it a little bit longer. And there's a promise there. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I'll do that tomorrow. I want to just moan a bit longer about the circumstances that I find myself in. You see, that's not taking hold of the inheritance that God has given us. The promises that he has given us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But I feel so alone. I feel so neglected. I feel so deserted. But the word of God says you're not. However you feel, whatever way you rationalize things, as a Christian, you are not alone. You are not deserted. You are never alone. God has taken up residence within your heart through the Holy Spirit. And we're never alone. Now, it might suit us from time to time to think that we are alone. Just that we can have our own little pity party with ourselves. And we fail to lay hold of the promises that God has given us. That's what some of these people are doing here in the book of Joshua. They are not taking what God has given them. They may walk around saying, I haven't been blessed. Where do you live? I live in a house What's the address of that house? Oh, that's the land that the Lord has given you. You have been blessed. I think the hymn writer gets it right when he says, Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what God has done. If you find that your head is just running away with negative ideas, bad ideas, lonely ideas. If you can't think it through, get a piece of paper or your iPad, whatever you want to work on. Some of, you, some of us remember paper and pen. Write down the blessings that God has given you. He has forgiven my sins. He has given me an inheritance reserved for me in heaven. He has adopted me into his family. He has given me his Holy Spirit. He has blessed me in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
And then when we write it down or type it in, we see the list, the growing list of what God has done. Having read a good bit of the book of Joshua already, when we see that there's some people that are blessed, we sort of feel that round the corner there's going to be somebody who doesn't feel so good. There's dissatisfaction with some of the people here. And that appears that they are discontent with the blessing, the gifts that God has given them. In verse 14, the people of of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for an inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us so abundantly. The Lord has given me so much blessing that I deserve more. We want more. Yes, we have been blessed and we want more inheritance. You can see, Joshua, that we have been blessed because we are a numerous people. God has blessed us abundantly. One thing for sure, we won't miss the point that the people are numerous because we get that mentioned three times. We have been blessed. We are numerous. Can't you see, Joshua, that we deserve more than this? Give us more, said the two tribes of Joshua. Of Joseph. We need it. We have, we have been blessed. We are numerous. We have earned it. We deserve it. Oh yes, says Joshua. You have been blessed. You are numerous and powerful. Then go and clear the forests of the hill country and take the land. The people of Joshua replied, The hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live in the plain have chariots fitted with iron, both those in Beth Shan and its settlements and those in the valley of Jezreel. In other words, we want more of the gift of God's inheritance, but we're not prepared to work for it. And we're, we're afraid to go up against the Canaanites. Where God had promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and I will drive out the enemy. They don't want to do that. I want blessing. I want easy blessing. I want quick blessing. The Lord has blessed me already. Therefore, I deserve to be blessed even more. We deserve more because God has blessed us and we are numerous. But we're not that numerous that we want to do the work to possess the land. And although God has blessed us in the past, we're not prepared to trust him for the future. We're not prepared to trust him to take possession of the remainder of this land. Just, Joshua, make it easy for us. And let us bathe in the blessings of God and in the inheritance of the land. Since they are so blessed, then surely nothing should be able to stop them in doing the work of the Lord. How often do we say we want more of Christ, but are not prepared to venture out in faith to trust Christ to help us accomplish his work? 
It's not that the it's not that Joshua is being insensitive about the obstacles that face the people of God, but he's believing what God has said in the book of Deuteronomy. You may say to yourselves, "These nations are stronger than we. How can we drive them out?" But do not be afraid. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all peoples you now fear. God has blessed us. We are numerous. We deserve more. We'll go and clear the forests. That sounds like hard work. Go and drive out those that are still in the land. No, we're scared of them because they've got great big guns, great big tanks. And we don't want to do that. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. Because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you look out across this city and you see politicians who are great in number, when you see militant atheists who are great in number and are opposing the work of the kingdom of God, do not be afraid of them. For I, the Lord your God, I am with you. These people, their complaint began with discontent for, what, for, for the Lord's gift. But there's a deeper problem. They don't believe that the Lord is adequate. The Lord is not going to do this. And what we find from compromise and complaint, we see an increasing decline among the people. Back in chapter 15, we noted a failure. Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem to this day. The Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. Chapter 16, they did not dislodge the Canaanites. Chapter 17, yet the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. There is an intensification of blame in these notes. First, we have Judah's inability, then Ephraim's failure in regard to one city, and they're settling for the Canaanite subversion rather than their expulsion. And finally, Manasseh's massive inability to control a number of strategic locations along with their preferences, even when they became strong, they allowed these people to continue in residence. There is an increasing decline. And this kind of accommodation of the enemy was a clear contradiction of the clear distinction that the Lord had, had made. Spiritual obedience would require violent holiness. We have to do violence to our own convenience in order that we have holiness in our lives. Holiness will not come about 
without explicit obedience to all that the Lord has said. We can see that the tribes are already losing their vision. We cannot afford a deviation from the Lord's will and from the Lord's program. And this is not merely just a problem with these two tribes. It's a problem of our age. In spite of all our talk, we fail to possess the mighty power that God has given us in the Holy Spirit. Again and again, our Lord has to remind us that God is not the prisoner of human odds. That his promises are at least as real as the, as the, the sight of these ironclad chariots that the enemy possessed. When we come to God in prayer, is the power of God as real as the problems that we pray about? Oh yes, the problems that we pray about, we can define them. We can analyze them. But is the power of God as real as those problems that we feel we ought to pray about? The book of Joshua says he is. I, the Lord your God, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. Let's pray.